Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? Uh, I'm alive, <laughs> which is more than I can say for how I felt most of this week. I've had the, the dubious pleasure today of starting to redo the every three-year clinical ethics training, um, which is very important, but also... According to who? (laughs) Franklin or the United States (laughs) government? Because if this were the Franklin medical ethics training... You know, conduct research, it should be important to them. Um, Just putting that out there. I mean, Franklin does a lot of research. Uh, I'm just saying if Franklin were conducting this exam for you, it would be... It, you have a female patient. Well, maybe maybe you Franklin sleep with her? should re, redo this uh, this training as well. Yes, I don't disagree, but but it it, uh, it takes a while to go through, and there are many modules and many quizzes. Yeah, that's probably why he never did it. <laughs> Who's got time for that? I know that I have to take a um, like a quiz on like money laundering and stuff every year and it's the same exact thing and i could pretty much like do it in my sleep now and horrifically i'm just like it's one of those things where i'm just like i feel like um ron swanson and just like i know more than you (laughs) 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 i know how to do crime unfortunately we have a bunch of them i mean because i work in corporate technology i have sexual harassment and uh oh god what's the other one we have a bunch of them we have to do sexual harassment and uh privacy laws and all kinds of weird uh topics that i have to be certified i have to pass a a, a certification on a data privacy is a big one mm-hmm. yeah it's fun yeah. i'm behind <laughs> i have like six of them do <laughs> I got stuff to do. I got better, more, I have far more important things to do than watch a, a 60 minute video and then click through a quiz about whether or not I should be uh, sharing people's credit card numbers. I don't touch people's credit card numbers. Yeah. Well, and, and same with the, um, I have to do all the like clinical research ethics stuff, but like I don't actually see patients and all the data mm-hmm. that I get is de identified, which granted is like, not all data that is de-identified is actually de-identified, as I'm sure you have learned in the data privacy and security thing. I am going you've to. Had to do. I'm going to save us from this conversation right now <laughs> because we're actually. going I was going to say this is hot content that I'm sure Zathras is going to love. I. This is stuff that should be. <laughs> this is stuff that shouldn't be cut because it's bad. It should be cut because it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> you don't find you don't find data I'm sure privacy of, conversations I'm, interesting. I'm sure at least one of our listeners is loading a revolver right now. Uh, all right, so we're here. It is. It has taken us. It's you know. It's it's taken us about precisely one year 
Um, But we are here. We are at the end of season four, which feels like an ending, but is not an ending. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on who you ask. Uh, I know a few people that never, uh, never bother to watch season five on on rewatches. Um, But yes, there is, in fact, another season after this. Well, we're we're already... I feel like I feel like I'm good at this point because we've already passed the point at which I like nope out of the show, mm-hmm. which, as previously discussed, is the precise moment when all of that you know ship debris is hurtling toward the bridge of the White Star, and uh, we're past that. So I'm I'm solid. I I believe in yeah. us. Okay. Uh, yes, if you have not figured it out, tonight we are discussing season four, episode twenty two. Deconstruction of Falling Stars. We are at the season four finale, baby. Uh, technically, it's the second season four <laughs> finale. Uh, the actual season four finale was filmed before confirmation of season five was received and was stuck in a can and was turned into the season five finale. Interesting. So that, that when we get to the end of season five, just keep that in the back of your mind that that was filmed as the end of season four with the no- with the thought that it was the end of the show, and then when they <laughs> got the when they got the extra season pickup, they just stuck it in the back of a drawer and then filmed deconstruction of falling stars to fill in. That's handy for season four finale, and went in and did and then filmed season five. And and this episode it really does feel like that because it feels sort of like that you know we were all discussing the other day on ted La- you know regarding ted lasso that they got news that they have two extra episodes in the season and like but already had the season plotted out and so those two episodes are great but also like don't necessarily mesh well with the rest of the plot of the season and this episode i think is is like that okay question I have a specific uh, comparison that I'm going to make once we get into our. Discussion. Oh right! Is this is this episode a Christmas episode or a beard and bell bottoms episode? It's neither. Okay, <laughs> we'll get there. I believe you've got the summary this week. Yes, um, yes. Uh, thank you for trading off the other day. So buckle up, everyone, for this wild ride. Yeah, so this is episode 22 of season four, Deconstruction of Falling Stars, written by JMS and directed by Stephen First. Veer! Yeah, our boy. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it is a wild episode. Uh, so yeah. we start with the scene on the station as Sheridan and Delenn return as newlyweds. Garibaldi and Franklin have apparently organized quite a welcome for them with balloons and confetti, uh, precisely because they know that Sheridan would absolutely hate this. And who knows, Mm -hmm. maybe they just wanted to celebrate being back together themselves. Uh, Jakar and Londo are there as well, returning from Earth. And Londo remarks that Centauri weddings are somber, while their funerals are celebratory, and, and asks who died, and gets a really, really awkward silence. Ooh, buddy. Yeah. And nobody even tells him that it's Marcus. Ugh. So Delenn and Sheridan speak regarding the celebration. Sheridan insists that in a hundred years, it's likely that no one will even remember them. And we see the ISN footage of their return to the station, but it is interrupted by... 
continuity error. We get a message and someone is accessing computer records regarding the Interstellar Alliance covering a thousand year span from the date when it was founded. The unknown viewer starts to display the records in chronological order. The first one is an ISN segment with talking heads discussing the newly formed alliance. The panelists include a senator, a journalist, and of course, one of Clark's speechwriters. The senator and journalist are both cautiously optimistic for the alliance, while the speechwriter is mostly interested in displaying his raging hate boner for Sheridan as he spews Clark propaganda. The record cuts out, and we move on to our next segment, an academic panel recorded on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the alliance. The panelists this time include a historian, a political scientist, and a psychologist. The panelists all mostly feel that the alliance has been a success, but do not think positively of either Sheridan or Delenn. There's an overall consensus that individuals don't change things themselves, they instead serve as catalysts and inspirations for for that change. And the panel thinks that Delenn and Sheridan fit into this category. Honestly, something that they would probably agree with. We do get some potential foreshadowing as well for the next season um, with discussion of the telepath war and B5's role in it. The discussion takes a nasty turn, though, in discussing Sheridan and Delenn as individuals. The psychologist describes Sheridan as pathological and paints a picture of a ruthless and vicious man. The political scientist doesn't quite buy into that, but argues that the mythos around Delenn and Sheridan is, in fact, just all myth, just the product of really good PR. The discussion is halted when an unplanned visitor arrives, a extremely elderly Delenn herself. She speaks on Sheridan's behalf and says that he was a good and kind man who cared deeply about Earth. The panelists want to ask her questions, but she refuses and chides them, saying that they do not wish to listen to her speak. They're only interested in hearing themselves speak, which is honestly accurate. (laughs) Our next segment is 500 years after the ISA was founded. It takes place in a holodeck, I mean, a holographic representation of Babylon 5, um, along with holographic versions of Sheridan, Delenn, Franklin, and Garibaldi. The person running the program is extremely frank about his goals. He wants to modify the personalities of those holograms and produce new footage to make the founders of the Alliance, and therefore the Alliance itself, look bad, uh, since Earth has once again set its sights on expansion and is on the brink of civil war. The programmer successfully changes Sheridan and runs a simulation where he speechifies that he will show no mercy to anyone who surrendered and he will blaze a path across the galaxy using their blood. Um, the reprogrammed Franklin also stars in a simulated log detailing horrific medical experiments. But this all gives Hollowbaldi Time to prepare himself for his own time in the sun, as he first goads the programmer into revealing details about the planned preemptive strikes on civilian targets, then manages to hack the network and release the information publicly. The simulation ends as klaxons ring out and the base housing the holodeck is destroyed. Next time point is 1,000 years after the founding of the Alliance, and we look in on an old monk who is setting up video equipment and marveling that it still works after so long. He's interrupted by a much younger monk who is having a crisis of faith. Apparently, these monks are tasked with 
preserving history and technology from the Great Burn 500 years ago, but must go on faith uh, for most of their work, as most records were destroyed, along with what sounds like most of the planet. The younger monk goes on to question specific mythical fi- figures, including the extremely messianic Blessed Sheridan. He reveals what's truly giving him pause, though. These scriptures talk about the rangers, who the young monk feel have abandoned Earth in its greatest hour of need, rather than helping rebuild as, as was prophesied. The older monk reassures the younger and tells him to have faith, since even if there were rangers on Earth, they would be working in secret to avoid persecution by those who blame science for the cataclysm. After the young monk departs, the older one interacts with the camera again, apparently submitting some sort of report on the progress of the Abbey in rebuilding technology. He's revealed to, of course, be a ranger himself, and he suggests in his report that the younger monk would make a promising recruit, given some time to mature. With the last record finished, the computer states that it has finished processing and archiving records for a period of one million years from the foundation of the Alliance. The man viewing the records instructs the computer to transmit the records to New Earth uh, as Sol is due to Nova in less than five hours. Before evacuating, the man turns into a ball of light, uh, which then interacts with a device that looks suspiciously like an, a Vorlon encounter suit, but with a head this time, so it's definitely different. And we cut to an external view of his ship with the ranger symbol on the side, jumping into hyperspace as the sun goes Nova. The very last scene is of Sheridan and Delenn snuggled into bed. They're once again talking- Without Jakar's eyeball nearby. <laughs> at least we don't see Jakar's eyeball. Yeah, I guess that's true. Maybe he got better at hiding it. But they're once again talking about their legacy and that of the Alliance. Sheridan wonders if people will remember them in a hundred or a thousand years from now. And he figures that they won't. Delenn reminds him that that doesn't matter. Um, because what they did, they did it because it was right- and that history will attend to itself. The last few frames are of a title card dedicating the episode to all the people who predicted that the Babylon Project would fail in its mission, and reminding the viewers that faith manages. This episode is so bananas. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to give my 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 thing that this feels. Yes, like. please give your hot take um, on this. It feels like the it feels like a it feels like an extra on a DVD. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like it doesn't really have the feeling of an extra episode because like there's no like I mean it, it's 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 sort of like the the thing you watch like it's a special feature on a sci-fi DVD that is like oh hey we're going to expand some of the world building a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That you watch if you're like a giant nerd but it's not part of the main continuity. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Some before we get into the discussion of the episode itself, uh, I think there are some really interesting additional bits of information uh, from the JMS Speaks for this episode that I think are useful to know in advance rather than after the way we usually do it. Uh, First of all, JMS notes that he realized as he was writing the Abbey section, the the, uh, 500 years at, what is it, thousand years after? Yep, a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he was writing a knockoff of Canticle for Leibowitz and put the whole thing aside for a couple of days, but he couldn't figure out a way to write what he wanted to write a different way. So he just went with it. But he acknowledges that he he very much is writing uh, something in the style of Canticle for Leibowitz, which if you have never read, is a a science fiction novel 
that is about a an abbey which restores information you know is like re- uh finding old old technology from before the burn mm-hmm. uh the other thing that's in- interesting to know is only earth got roasted in the great burn uh <laughs> the colonies were all fine and then they just left earth to fend for itself yes and uh Garibaldi is the reason why Earth got roasted in the burn. I love that. I mean, honestly, it's the best Garibaldi content we've had in the entire show. Yeah. Uh, his, his broadcast caused the colonies, which were all on the ISA, ISA side of the conflict, apparently, <laughs> to preemptive strike and just nuke Earth into the ground, basically. Yeah. New Earth. New Earth at the end is the Vorlon homeworld. Squints. Humans have moved to the Vorlon homeworld uh, is in this, a million is years. This, is this like the shadows moving to Zaha Doom because Lorian yes. was there? Ugh, this feels gross. Yeah. Uh, and the very last point, uh, which I hate, is that according to JMS, the Minbari also achieve first one status and are running around in encounter suits, I guess. I don't know. But the Narn and Centauri do not, which I think is horseshit. Yes, Obviously, the Centauri do not <laughs> do not uh, become an incorporeal race that you can't fuck when you're uh, glowy space <laughs> when you're a glowy, uh, you know, ascended thing. Uh, but the Narns, there's no way that Narns are less spiritually advanced than humans are and do not achieve an ascended state. Yeah, I 100 percent call shenanigans on that JMS. And, I, feel, uh, I feel like that's based on him writing himself into a corner with the fact that the Vorlons were like, you know, the, the thing from like, it was freaking episode one where Kosh is like, they are a dying people. And it's which one? Yeah. Yes. And like, I feel like he might've felt like he wrote himself into a corner or felt like he had to stand by that or something like that, which is also horseshit. But I refuse to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I just, it's yeah. a JMS speak, so I personally don't buy that. Or anything. But. It's just in a JMS speak, so who gives a shit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's all. Or maybe just just the Jakar following sect of Narns mm. ascend. Everybody else can fuck off, but all of yeah. Jakar's followers should. I don't, I don't, I personally, it's like, I don't really care at that point. I'm just like, I, it's. I don't it, care if they ascend or not. I'm just offended by the suggestion that the fucking stupid humans who nuke their own homeworld somehow get the ticket to the next stage of, evo- of, of yeah. evolution and the Narns don't. The humans are too fucking stupid. I don't, I just don't buy it. I, I, I personally like the idea that, you know, I always wonder with these things, like, why is the like epitome of evolution or whatever, like the freaking like telepathic energy being thing, glowy ball of light. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, I do. Lo- I do though. Love that humans look like, look like Vorlons. Like they wear a Vorlon suit, except with a fucking weirdo <laughs> head on it. It looks bad. They did not, did not put a lot of work into that. And then they, Take over the Vorlon homeworld. Well, and the physical form they choose to take when they want to look like humans looks like a dude from a '90s Vampire the Masquerade <laughs> game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do, I do want to like, I do want to point something out here. They have this. They have Solgo Supernova one million years after the forming of the Alliance. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
That is a significant astronomical. Yeah. Yep. And that's that's not that's that's supposed to be that that is a significant acceleration of when it is supposed to be because as best we know and have known for quite a while since we figured out how supernovas work we figured out that soul has about five and a half billion years on its lifespan yep. yeah it's it's that's discussed in the is episode. it a planned demolition <laughs> uh, in the episode it mentions that that's abnormal there's something abnormal going on with soul supernova and in the JMS speaks he says. Uh, supernovas happen when mass decreases. I wonder what would happen if somebody opened a jump gate inside of a sun. So it's a planned demolition. Uh, I don't know if it's a planned demolition, uh, but somebody is blowing up soul. Yeah. It's not clear who's doing it, but somebody's blowing up soul. Yeah, okay. Also, also the whatever that dude is using to like, you know, collect all that data is fascinating because he's using some sort of like temporal anomaly or something to like yeah. collect all of those transmissions from mm. from the past. Yeah. Like it's it's a very it's a very like great machine vibe. I got that vibe too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh okay, so with regards to the episode <laughs> um the actual episode itself, the fact that one of Clark's speechwriters is like they never actually say it's Clark's speechwriter, but you can infer. I thought they did. No, okay. they do not. He's just a speechwriter. It's a a, for, a a former speechwriter. A former speechwriter who just happens to parrot all of Clark's talking points. Yeah, yeah I I uh, I have a feeling that he's like on the Santiago ticket or something. <laughs> well, he's yeah he he. It's rough that he's there. Like I'm trying to imagine, like an overt Nazi sympathizer being on TV in. Post-war Germany. I mean, is that a? Th- I mean, I don't know. Is 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 that a thing that actually happened? I mean, I ask you to look at our current news networks. No, but I'm saying <laughs> yes. I get that. No, but I'm saying they literally just had a military. I don't know. Yeah, but it's, but it's a purposes. lot closer. It's a lot closer to where we are now than right yeah, after World War Two because there is. There is no great urge to... There is no, like, resounding defeat. That's a fair point. There's no great urge to clean things up. It is it is a desperate desire to return to I feel like this is. I feel like this is the logical continuation of the both-sides-ism that we saw un- yeah. noted in the last episode. Yeah, that's fair. Even though Clark was willing to torch the planet, they very much are painting him as, like, they're scapegoating Clark rather than putting his entire faction up for trial. They're very much scapegoating him as yeah. one mad one mad leader. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, Clark wanting to torch the planet, that's just what the the, you know, liberal media wants you to believe. <clears throat> Ugh, I feel dirty just yeah. saying that. Yeah. I think it's an interesting framing device for the episode. Um just like the the candid diegetic like polls i'm trying to think of like how i feel about this like is it's i think i think the first one is good i think the second one like the the 100 years after we'll say aaf after alliance founding okay is i think it's a bit of a nothing burger um in terms of like um i think it i think it is part of it is just like i don't like it because it's 
very like historical wankery mm-hmm. um, that is re- that is reiterating stuff that JMS has already tried to save with the actual content that he's done in season four. That's a fair point. Mm-hmm. I I think it is it is it is trying to st- it is trying to like lay out theories. Like it's like it's like when you get to the end of a it's like when you get to the end of a five paragraph essay in an EP test and you're restating all of your points from earlier just so you can like fill out that last paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I get you. It's funny. Uh, you're thinking about it in a much more meta context. I just liked it because Delenn shows up like Jesus in the marketplace and flips everybody's table over, yeah. <laughs> whacks them with a stick and scolds them and calls them a bunch of assholes. I love that she shows up, tells them unambiguously that they're all fucking idiots and that they're wrong. And when they're like, all right, well, we have questions you know, they for you. They lie and they're basically, and they're like, well, okay, well, why don't you prove it? And, you know, answer some questions. And she's like, I don't know. You fucking shit. You're, you're not interested in, 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 in my truths. You're just, you're just here to listen to yourself speak. Fuck off. And then leaves. Yeah. That part is good. Like, I think it's, but I think it's like the part where it's like, it's three, historians wanking in only a way that academics can wank. <laughs> and like James writes that kind of wankery very well. I will I will give him credit for that. Yeah. It's like he is a dude who knows academics. Also, I can't believe that 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 so little information about Sheridan and Delenn has like actually survived a hundred years. Like I feel like you know, to have to have that little, especially to be able to recreate their personalities so like in so much accu- accuracy in five hundred years. I think it's like that. There is a lot of more that 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 data is a lot more accessible, and I'm sure there are like neural nets or something that they can use to like like we train this neural net on on twenty years of John Sheridan. Uh, press conferences and executive decisions or whatever yeah. of the alliance. And, now, and, and then we asked it to give us recipes. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's, I, I do think that's a little bit of, a little bit goofy because there's no way that, even if you put aside the whole like gap in technology between like what we understand about technology and what was understood about technology when the episode was written, with the yeah. way technology was depicted in the show, there's no way that there would not be enormous amounts of of inf- data about Sheridan that would have yeah. mm-hmm. spoken to the subject that they were talking that they were talking about because it's not like these guys are are at the far end of the galaxy or something. These are like ostensibly within the ISA. Yeah. Talking about the uh, the the foundation yeah. of the ISA. So they can go like to the library and look up the data archives. Yeah. And they could look up, Get you know, a box whatever of, crystal, of unlabeled crystals that they have to randomly plug in <laughs> to find the data that they want. And I have such mixed feelings on that because, you know, at the point where they're like, yeah, like individuals don't, Sheridan and Delenn as individuals did not like themselves shape history. Um, they were, you know, catalysts for sh- for change and like inspirations, et cetera. And like, that's, that's honestly not that far off from how Delenn and Sheridan probably feel about it yeah and that's probably how they feel yeah. about it but i think that they are they are actual effect they are actual agents yeah, yeah. of change you know that's that's a point where you can you know we could argue about where historians could argue about like you know what amount of this change would have happened without them as specific agents but then like 
the th- the part where they get like vicious and it's just like the yeah. the taking down the personalities yeah i mean th- what i'll say is that like the what the 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 historians are doing like when i say that jms is restating these theories this is the fe- like the 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 statement that they're saying of like that people don't matter history progresses is Francis Fukuyama and like in it, it, it's basically that's basically the point of it is like it's sort of regressive because it's also like it, it's it takes a very evolutionary approach to history of like history only moves forward towards like the end goal of history and of course that and of course that's basically immediately broken within the episode yeah it, it, it's it's very like it, it's it's restating that theory um and it's interesting how that plays out and. I think that for this thought line of history, which seems to be a very popular thought line of history in the Earth of twenty of the 24th century, is that there is a requirement to dismantle those figures. Um, even without evidence, like saying, we are going to say, oh, hey, there is the telepath war. We're going to take a commonly... And we're going to take a commonly held political stance of we do not negotiate with terrorists. And we're going to extrapolate the fact that we're going to extrapolate to Sheridan was a massive psychopath who was like driven to like create his own like, yo, listen, that is even for Sheridan, a rather large leap. And there's so many other ways that you could depict him as a psychopath. They don't even mention all of his war crimes. I mean, yeah, they, they, they're, I mean, they're not going to. I mean, like, because in JMS's view, those are actually like justified. I'm just saying that if you're going to call him a yeah. psychopath, there's much better ways to, to to paint him as one. I don't know. Maybe maybe we don't, maybe who knows? Maybe 24th century Earth doesn't know about the telepaths used in the Mars Rebellion. I would not at all be surprised if that information is not public. Oh, yeah, no, that that seems like a thing of like, no, we are never letting anybody know about those because it's that horrifying. There, yeah, but that's just one of his war crimes. Like, there's a ha- there's a handful but, of yeah, them you to could pick act from. Uh, you could absolutely be like, I mean, the man, the man, you know, you know, mined an asteroid field and then lured a ship in under false pretenses, like. Daddy loves a war crime. We've established There's this. a lot. I, I, yeah, but no, it, it's, I mean, what we're doing is because this is here to set up season five, at least a little tiny bit, mm-hmm. is that we get like this future scene yeah. to, to show us what the telepath war is going to be. Uh, yeah. My favorite of all of these is the next the, one the, in the Abbey. The nec- well, the next one is the, the hollow baldy. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, I don't like well, that one. I, I love the holodeck episode. Do, do you know what it reminds me of? Every it reminds me of that episode of Voyager yes. where the doctor, like one of the doctor's backups is reactivated on an alien planet. And they're like, we've reconstructed the crew of Voyager from our data as well as some historical extrapolation. And it's like, Jane there's like, wearing, like black leather gloves. And yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, Janeway is like evil Bobby Dobby. Yes. Um, and like, and like, like they get, Harry's species wrong. It's 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 like it's it. That's what it reminds me of. And then, just and like then on a seven of nine has like a whole fleet of board drones. God, it's so. I thought I was gonna say it's the one where um, what's his name Moriarty figures out that he's. 
I mean, on TNG too. where he figures out that he's a simulation and breaks and takes over the uh, the Enterprise. I do find it extremely funny that JMS just found a way to do another Star Trek episode inside yeah. a season, like another episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. It, I, I mean, other than like the novelty of it being a holodeck one, it's fine. I think it's an interesting thing. Also, it's just like. Holy shit, that dude is wearing SS runes. What the fuck? Yeah, it, it's pretty transparent between that and, like, the the way he talks about, like, truth and stuff. Like, yeah. it's You're going for a very 1984 vibe, yeah. especially with, like, some of, like, the, the vocabulary he yeah. uses. Yeah, he's yeah. laying it on real thick. Like, mm-hmm. we're here to establish the, the good facts as opposed to the real facts, TM. Yeah. Exactly. See, I'm I'm just surprised in that in in your ragging on this section, you did not say something about how um, you know, why do they have to invent fake malpractice oh, for Franklin? Shit. That's that is good. Are you I've, still feverish, Jim? I've been sick. I've been off my game. <laughs> that's so good though. They really didn't have to. Like they could have sampled anything he did in the first three seasons, and that would have been absolutely appropriate. Although, so do you know what this is though? Do you know what this is though? This is immigrants are going to come here and have babies with you, and they're go- and like, and it, it, it's a it's a like it's a fascist. We they will not replace us theory. Yeah, no, I, I get that. It's a specific kind yeah. of fear mongering, and Franklin is a is a terrifying monster, but maybe not the specific kind of terrifying monster they were going right. for. I was, but I do feel like didn't make a joke. I know I'm I'm disappointed in myself. Bummer. <laughs> anyway, I do like the next, the, the one in the Abbey, though. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really like my favorite part of it. There's a lot I like about it. Um, my favorite part is when the older monk is, is recording his little message out. Um, and he, he, at one point, he says something like, and next time, maybe bury the, bury the cash a little deeper. We barely had to scrape the dirt off of it this time or something like that. Yeah. Where he's like, he's like, come on, guys, put some, put some effort into it. Uh, that made me laugh. Um, and he's like, in Valen's name. It's like, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, I like that yeah. uh, Valen sticks around for a thousand years. Um, yeah. The one part I hate about that particular segment is that they're building a gasoline engine. Yeah. I mean, if it's the it, Rangers, it's, it's, why can't they guide them toward like, Something that's not going to like ruin the environment more because uh, the planet. I mean, been... it's probably because it's like it's a it's a necessary step of like understanding how the chemicals work, like how chemical reactions work. If they're if you have to rebuild <sighs> the technology base of a planet, it's like oh hey, understanding how this very important chemical reaction works and you know is a jumping off point. Let's face it, Earth has been through a nuclear war. A gasoline engine isn't going to do much worse. Yeah. And this is and this is five hundred years after the Great Burn, too, which is like woof. Yeah. The illuminated manuscript's real good. Yeah, I was just yeah. about to say that. I love the illuminated oh. manuscript with the the what is it, the blessed Sheridan. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I absolutely love in the in this scene is whenever there is a camera cut. Because, like, you know, it's a multi-camera scene. Whenever they change camera, you can see the camera number in the bottom left. Like, which which camera yeah. diegetically in the scene oh. is recording it. Yeah, and it's all Roman numerals, too. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very, like, that of, like, that's a great touch. I didn't catch that. I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch that section. 
like I thought I was imagining stuff because it's like it's a little it's like a little transparent Roman numeral, and I was and and it was like oh oh no it's the thing that they are actually doing on each cut yeah it was a re- it's it's a really nice touch I I think it's like in the way that like doing the ISN stuff mm-hmm. uh, was a, was a cool thing it's like it's a cool thing that like it makes it's like it doesn't change the scene at all but it makes it like five percent more. It fits. It, it helps it fit the framing of the episode a little bit better. Yeah, because yeah, that that scene wouldn't have worked if it was a single camera. Yeah. yeah, making it him talking to the the cameras embedded in the room really like adds to it. I like it. Yeah, I love that the the illuminated mans- manuscript has Marcus in it. Yeah, it does. It's good so to Marcus- know that the legend of Marcus has survived for a thousand years. Yeah, I. It's weird because I'm like. There, there's like probably things of like I could branch out off of, but like knowing that there's another season here and that the real finale is at the end of season five, I don't really have a lot that I like. It makes you not like want to invest a lot of thought into this episode. But part of what I what I do want to say is that J. Michael Straczynski, for an atheist, like has the most positive portrayals of Catholics <laughs> and like spends more time seriously thinking about faith than like most like like he i i made this joke on twitter while while i was watching the episode but jms is that person who i i knew several of these people who were raised catholic absorbed like everything that catholicism teaches and decided i'm going to take all this with me but i'm not gonna stick around here yeah no i think jms generally we know from his comments that jms is not just like agnostic atheist but is like pretty, not virulently, but pretty stridently agnostic atheist. He He's uh, pretty firmly in the, like, take your religious stuff and shove it. I'm not interested in, he, in your religious stuff being forced on me. But I think he has a really healthy respect for what religion brings to yeah. a people. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it's really astounding and rare, I think, to have somebody who is like that vehemently atheist who still recognizes that religion and spirituality can be positive aspects of other people's lives. Yeah. I think the the scene that to me best exemplifies JMS's view on religion is in the first season in God, I don't remember the name of the episode, uh, where uh Sinclair walks the ambassadors down the line of all the parliament of dreams Dreams. that was it yeah where he walks (laughs) them down the line of all the different religious faiths of earth i feel like that very much is is jms saying it's not about there being any one truth it's about being a truth seeker and about valuing all the people all the different ways on earth that people look for truth and i think that jms super respects that and I think that crops up a lot in his in in Babylon Five in particular. Uh, yeah, I I agree. It's it's a. It, I think it is super rare, and I think it makes for really great content because he's able to, on the one hand, say, "I will put in 1995, I will try and put, I will try and get a a gay romance into my show," and I don't care what your, you know, fundamentalist mom's action network phone drive. Uh, says about it like I don't care I'm gonna do my thing while at the same time not making a punching bag of religion 
You know, he's got Brother Theo, mm-hmm. and he's got the Minbari with their particular religion, and he gives Jakar this amazing spiritual arc. Like, I think that's really good to be able to balance those two things of having a, a respect for spirituality and religion, but also not being beholden to any particular, you know, creed. I think it also helps us see, you know, so you pull, you pulled examples there of, you know, human and non-human religions and spirituality. And I also like that we see a variety of human spirituality as well, beyond just the Parliament of Dreams episode. Yeah. We have, you know, the fact that Ivanova is Jewish is concretely part of her character, and it's something that we see on screen. It's not just, you know, alluded to or something like that. You know, we've got the... Franklin's weirdo faith. (laughs) Yeah, you have your foundationalism. Yeah. There's the there's the guy who tells um, Sheridan to just go kiss Delenn already. Yeah, and well, and then you have Brother nice. Theo's monks, and yeah, yeah, you do have yeah. you you have a much more uh, a much broader display of faiths on the station than you have almost anywhere else. I'm excited to see in the reboot what how he takes that even further. That's one of the things that I'm most excited about for the reboot is. The one place I think where JMS was most constrained, other than like budget, as far as like you've got eleven ninety five and a gift card to the science shop, please make a <laughs> set for the med lab. Like, other than that, the th- the place he was most constrained by the network in particular was like there. He 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 commented several times on being told how far he could go with some of this stuff. Yeah, and you know you have to include a sexy pilot. And you can't have Ivanova and Talia kiss and stuff like that. And putting it on a reboot in this day and age effectively will let him do whatever the fuck he wants. Especially on CW. Yeah. They're not going to tell him he can. There will be very little. I mean, he probably can't put raw fucking, like actual (laughs) explicit fucking. I think he also can't swear. Yeah, and they can't, can't yeah, really they swear. can't say fuck, which is fine. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would have loved I mean, to have heard Jakar say fuck, but other <laughs> than that, he's gonna have pretty much free reign to have anybody, any sexual, gender, race, anything he wants to do there, he's gonna be able to do. And I think that's really exciting. It's also risky for him because now if it is crappy, we he doesn't have the excuse of like, oh, the network didn't let me. But I'm optimistic because JMS thus far has not. I also suspect that there's going to be a faction of fans who didn't get it the first time around and are like, why are you putting all this politics into Babylon 5? Yeah, that's the one thing about JMS being on Twitter. I really do appreciate that he's just like, doesn't give a fuck about the old fans. (laughs) I really respect that about JMS. He's been doing a bunch of tweeting lately. And a lot of the tweets are like, I, I, you know, as a as an old, old school fan of the old show, blah, blah. And he's like, that's great. Go watch the old show. The, the reboot's something different. Like, yeah. he has, like, he occasionally will make a comment along the lines of like, I'm glad you like the old show and I'm glad you watched it. But like, he is not remotely coddling the old fans when it comes to the new show. He's like, fuck off. I'm not interested in in placating you like... It's very comforting to know that he's not trying to hold anybody's hand. He's like, 
we got a new show. Like, be happy about that. Like, somebody was like, I really wish you'd just done, like, another movie. And he's like, the CW came to me and said, do you want a reboot? Here's a fuck ton of money. What the fuck do you want? Like, fuck off. It was yeah. it was very funny. I have two I know that faces. Oh, good. I didn't think to do that. Oh, you, you also had... We, uh, I'd also like to say that you, we each had a note regarding the balloons. Oh, yes. The balloons are trans pride colors. Also. I do not know if that was intentional. <laughs> I, I, intentional or not, I love that. But also, balloons in rotational gravity. I just, that's not, they should be stuck to the, anyway, uh, moving <laughs> on. That's not how balloons work. So who, what are the faces? All right. So, this one is a very, it's specifically a personal one for me. So, the the writer, not not, not like the, uh, the the Martian writer in the one AAF uh, scene is a dude named Bennett Geary, uh, or Geary. He was, in Charmed, he was the source of all evil. But more importantly, in the... FMV cutscenes in Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight, he played the Jedi Master Q-Ron. Wow, deep cuts. Jeez. In, in, in Dark Forces 2, all the cutscenes were FMV, so they were live-action shots. So he, he has played a Jedi Master. Okay. Wow. Um, he is the uh, Jedi that Kyle Katarn gets his lightsaber from. Like it's a, He appears in like, as like holograms and stuff. Mm. Uh, and I think he actually appears in person, but I cannot remember most of it. Uh, he also did. He was also um, a merchant in uh, Points of Departure, but eh, whatever. Try to and the second one, the 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 f- more fun one, is uh, the the historian from the University of New York in the 100 AAF scene. The one who's asking the question that is being like rather much nicer. Than the two people. Oh, two yeah, panelists. yeah. The one who's like the moderator. Yeah, the moderator for that is a dude named Alistair Duncan. What a name. I was just going to say. <laughs> he has been the voice of Alfred Pennyworth in recent years. Nice. Uh, Jude, he is the voice of Celebrimbor in the Shadow of Mordor games. I don't know whether I'm I'm pleased or insulted about that, uh, but cool. I have my feelings about those games, but... I'm sh- I know. Uh, um, he is also counselor. Uh, he is also Nihilus. Oh, uh, man. From Mass Effect. Uh, as well as the Turian counselor. Beautiful. He is also Metal Gear Rising Revengeance as a corrupt U.S. senator who has the infamous immortal line, nanomachines. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a I, resume. This dude's. That this dude's this dude is beggars only for his roles, and yeah. they're all like voice roles, which great, love that. Babylon Five has really got it has tapped some really amazing voice actors and given them given them some FaceTime. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, that's like that's that's ninety sci fi in general yeah. for you. There, are we done with season four? <laughs> yeah. Final thoughts on season four, like. What's your what's your one sentence final thought on season four? Should have been two seasons. Uh, I would say mine is not as good as season three, but still slaps. And it needed more alien dick.
suspect Justin's roommates are cheering a sporting event of some variety. Um, yeah, I think my thing is that it is um, a wildly unbalanced season that could only have been the product of both a shortening and shakeup from the network um, that has some high points. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I'd probably rank it below season three and above season two. Really? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's been a while since I've watched any season two stuff, but it's like I'd rank it below season three. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Fascinating. Um, I think it, I think the plot holds together a little bit better than season two in like the, the ratio of good episodes to questionable episodes. I think it's a bit better. Right. Yeah. Okay. Re- readjusting that. I like this more than season two. <laughs> I definitely like it more than season two, but I season three has so many good episodes. Right. I, that's why season three is at the top. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying this was better than season three. No, no. no, no. Season three, I think is peak B5. Yeah. That's, that's like, Oh God, is it a bell curve? Oh, it is. No, it's like well, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, the bell curve. So it's a bell curve with a little bit lopsided on the ends. Yeah, it's a slightly well, crooked and, bell curve. And we'll see. We'll see how um, Justin feels about season five once we finish it. And we'll see how we feel about season five once we finish it. Having like neither of us watched it in like a decade. Yeah, that's going to be a trip because we're kind of all going into it. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Justin. Other than a few pieces of information that I remember, I'm functionally as as blind as to what happens in season five as you are. Cool. I'm I'm really head empty about this shit. I'm ready to. I'm just ready to soak it in and just. I like it's it's gonna be one of those things of like, I've sort of got like really like relaxed expectations not like low expectations but just relax there's it's not like there's a there's a low floor it's just that there's a cushion on the floor yeah Yeah. i get you uh and so i'm just like i am full like i'm just here to roll with it now just i want good vibes one two i know three pieces of information two bad and one good (laughs) about season five like out of like just random pieces of information about it um so we'll see and and unfortunately, season five, I think I think everybody's opinion on season five would be drastically different if it were Captain Ivanova. Yeah. Yeah. If Ivanova hadn't left, it would be a vastly different sh- uh, show. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, not just in terms of, you know, quality of acting or pulling or, you know, having to construct a new character out of whole cloth and just drop them in when everybody else is established. Um mm-hmm. It's also the like fan bitterness, right? Like, um, it's like it's like the Ezri Dax problem, right? That you know there are legitimate reasons to like or dislike Ezri Dax as a character, but you know things were changed. But largely, people hate her because she's not Terry Farrell, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it'll be interesting to see. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to go into season five with an open mind and like more forgiveness in my heart for the reasons why. You know, Claudia Christian moved on, and they got something, somebody else in, etc. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to approach it with, you know, with an open mind at least. Yeah. Okay. All right. I believe we have some questions to close out the episode. Yes. 
As this is our 50th episode, we have decided to solicit questions. Uh, we got a couple, and I want to thank everybody who did it. So Josie asked on Twitter, is there something about the show so far you really wish had gone differently? Ooh. I mean, other than actors leaving, I think that's the big one, is that, like, I would have liked to see Talia return or something. That would have been such a bonkers change. Like, think about the downflow implications if Talia had not left, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. I think that, personally, putting aside that one, because that would be very high on my list. Same with Claudia Christian, you know, sticking around for season five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how the Shadow War would have gone if I I don't particularly love the whole like Anna Sheridan comes back plotline. Yeah, it feels weird. It feels weird. I'm curious what like because it doesn't really add anything. So I'm I'm curious what how that would have played out if he had never gone to Zaha Doom. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, obviously it would have deprived him of the opportunity to do a war crime, which is a bummer for him. But I think that would have been an interesting like where's the where's it go from there if he doesn't go to Zaha Doom how does that how does the war evolve from there without that point Yeah I think that there's like I would have loved to see how given a full season the Shadow War plays out Yeah cuz that was really accelerated Yeah um and like and how like if Claudia Christian doesn't leave the show how does that whole season how does that whole thing at the end of the season resolve Yeah My mine I've got another one, which is that I would have loved to see what would have happened with Franklin if they had actually like written him in as a main character who's actually in the loop and involved with plot things rather as than opposed just to as opposed to just dumping the dumping the one off episodes on him. The creepy side plots. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Because if you'd had him be like a more integral part. Especially if you had him serving as a bit more of a like broader science officer, or you could also have him do a lot with essentially diplomacy because he's met all sorts of different aliens. So you could pull him in on all sorts of stuff being like, hey, you know, Steven, you spent four months on a Burkiri ship. Talk to us about it. Yeah. But making him making him a real character would have been really nice. Yeah. As opposed to a drug using sex pest. Yeah. All right. Um, next one is from Ryan. Um, referencing the fact that the Centauri figured out pretty early in their history that they had an alien jump gate in their star system. How do you think humanity would be different if we had discovered a large alien built object in our solar system between 1846 and 1930? Uh, between like when we found Neptune and when we found Pluto. I think that that changes a lot of human history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I know exactly how, what would be different. We would already be fucking aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? A hundred years? We would absolutely have figured out how to crack that open. And we would be out in the stars hunting down alien dick by now. No question. Final answer. I think, I think it would have... It would be really interesting because I think it would likely have there's the there's the possibility that it would like lead to a bunch of you know a bunch of humanity kind of like coming together for a shared goal um but who who knows 
Justin's the history. Justin's the history person here. What you have is you have an entirely different human history of the 20th century, at least, and you have an entirely different book. You, you have you have that as you have that as a science fiction series on its own, um, because if a if you're able to detect a trans Neptunian object in the 19th century, it would have to be huge. Yeah, like planet sized. Yeah, and that would be groundbreaking. Um, and yeah, and that would actually be a a pretty neat um, that would like be a pretty neat like sci-fi series i'd be interested to see how that would go and like what is the revolution revelation of that it vaguely reminds me of i i just finished reading cat valenti's um radiance and it vaguely uh for for those of you who haven't read it that's a kind of mashup of sci-fi and and by sci-fi like sci-fi and like you know old film stuff but the the sci-fi vision in it is you know the the idea of like you know each planet is just like its own ecosystem so like you have wild uh lilies that grow on pluto and you can live there um and Mm. venus is covered with oceans and has weird whales um that's dope yeah it's it's a really good book i should check that out i love i love shit like that and if you're like a if you're like a film buff i think you'll probably enjoy it as well it just thinking about it reminds me of a of, of a fantastic book that is technically unreleased, but the but the author and artist did a thing for it. Um, it's it's a a book called Spacecraft of the First World War, which basically has humanity discover interstellar travel via the Martian invasion through War of the Worlds. <laughs> Interesting. But the but the way that the the way that the history of it is presented is it's like a one of those like coffee table books that like you'd look through for like battleships of world war two or something like that, where you have like the history of this class and like how the technology behind it and stuff. It just, that's sort of just like that, that time period, like that's what makes me think of it. But it's just like, um, yeah, no, it'd be, I, that, it's not really Babylon five. I think if like that happens because Babylon five is an extrapolation of 1990s. Yeah. America really. I have a fascinating question. Yeah. Is a reboot of Babylon five going to be an extrapolation of the nineties or an extrapolation of the 2020s into the future? I, it's gotta I be the latter. I hope that it's the latter. I would hope that it's from, the latter. I hope it would. From what JMS has said, I'm pretty confident it's the latter. You know the yeah. the way that he's kind of really mm-hmm. gone, really gone out of his way to remind people that this is a new thing, that he's yeah. taking the basic premise and going back to the original okay. drawing board. Yeah, uh, uh, that'll make it, that that's going to make it really interesting because like a lot of some of the fundamental tenets of that show, stylistically and formally, are as Justin has very excellently pointed out, based on some 90s shit. And (laughs) reinterpreting that, taking those, taking like the basic ideas, but then running with them in the 20, from like the 20, you know, 2020s forward, I think produces a much different, like looking Babylon 5 than. Yeah. Babylon 5 with the internet for one thing. And cell phones. 
Yeah. Uh, but also, like, I, I'm just thinking, like, aesthetically, like, do you get, you know, the rotating destroyers? Or do you get something different? My money is on the station design staying largely the same and the ship designs um, mimicking the expanse. I can see that. Um, and, and us seeing a lot more kind of flip and burn maneuvers. Okay, last question we have is from uh, Leaf on Twitter. What's a minor species in or out of the league that you would like to see built up ex- or explored in the reboot? I'm a big Pac stand. Um, my answer would be the Dilgar. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good answer because um, we know we went to war with them, but that's, I mean, we don't know a whole lot more than that. I mean, we know that like 20 year, like at, at the end of the Dilgar War, we find out that the reason they were doing the war was because their son was going to go supernova and they basically all died. I wonder if that, like, I think it'd be interesting to change that. And like, I think that'd be a, I think that'd be a race that you could do a little bit more exploration with that. And I think there's more you could dig from that. Especially because it's Earth's big introduction into the galactic stage. Mm -hmm. So I've got an answer for this as well. So I know we all really love the Drazi purple-green jokes. Yes. I would like to know, how on Earth did they get there? Like You stole my fucking answer. (laughs) I want to know this too. How do you have an entire race of fucking idiots that can't... Whose, whose entire governmental system appears to consist of flipping a quarter with violence. And how do they become an interstellar faring civilization? Yeah, right? Like, I, all of I, that. I mean, granted, we have a, a system that is essentially like quarter flipping with violence, only more complicated. So who am I to judge? But like, their system seems extremely it's not just that their system seems extremely bizarre, but they all seem generously kind of dumb. Like like himbo dumb. Not like not like dumb dumb, but just, you know, not bright dumb. Maybe it's because they maybe it's because that like outside of this one period of violence every five years, they're actually pretty chill dudes. Yeah, maybe. But it's just <laughs> like every interaction we have with the Drazi. It seems like they... I just think they're better <clears throat> over email. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback joke there. Yeah. <laughs> God. I just... I Yeah, that was my answer as well. I'm, I would love to know how this, how this race of, of goofuses, A, developed this bizarre governmental system, and B, managed to not civil war themselves into a smoking ruin... Before they got out into space. The other, the other thing that I always wonder about. So remember, remember in um, the episode with Londo's ascension, we learn about the that the the Centauri were not the only sapient species to arise on their planet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like they murdered the other ones. <laughs> yeah, the, like Zerg or whatever they are. Yeah, pretty far, pretty sure those are actually out of Starcraft, but whatever. <laughs> didn't we talk didn't we decide that they were like that this was the root of their like fear of I feel like we had a long conversation about this. No, that that, that is not due to the, that is not for their fear of uh the 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 dick monster. That was on a Yeah, different no, that episode. was the knuckling feeders. Yeah, yeah. But but they 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 had, you know, there was another sapient 
species that developed on their species mm-hmm. on their planet and the centauri murdered them and like i would like to learn more about this because having two sapient species arise on the same planet is buck wild yeah no i agree and also and also like how far in the past was it that the centauri annihilated them the zon i was xon it was a sentient race that evolved parallel to them on centauri prime they evolved on the continent of zonos separate from the distant continent on which the centauri evolved and it was not until one or both of the civilization developed the technology to cross the oceans that they became aware of one another. So we're talking about like the age of sail. That Wild. They finally- God. Can you imagine getting into a boat and going across the ocean and then finding an entirely different fucking species? Yeah. They were wiped out in the war of 20 million deaths. <laughs> they were completely wiped out at, uh, during uh, at the end of which the new Centauri Republic was founded and the first emperor uh, known to history as Subduer of the Zon. Wild. Both both the Vorlons and the Technomages regret the extinction of the Zon, but nothing is known about them. They apparently went extinct sometime in the 13th century. That's not that long ago. Nope. Yeah, I mean, a thousand years. Yeah. Um, yeah, right around the time when Valen was getting his shit going on. Yeah. Um, cool. Fun digression. Um, those, so those are all the questions that we we have. Next time we are going to be starting season five with episodes one and two. No compromises. And the very long night of Londo Malari. Until next time. Be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.